This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Last week, I sort of tread upon some dangerous territory uh, with my message on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which the message was called the Battle of Liege because uh, Belgium and Liege specifically always seem to be in the center of battles in the European landscape. And the same is true with in the biblical landscape, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It always seems to be the center of a battle. And that's a very unique message. And if you haven't heard it, I would, I would definitely encourage you to go back and grab that because many of us can trip over some uh, aspects of Scripture that are not meant to trip us, but the devil seems to recognize when he does his survey of Scriptures, like, I could use that. And he tries to use the Scriptures against us. And it's ironic, but here we have this God of all mercy and the very concept that the enemy tries to wield, saying, no, your God doesn't want any more to do with you. Look, you sinned, you messed up. And it creates a... Uh, a spiritual fallacy when we believe the devil's take on things instead of understanding God's take. And it can actually lead to the destruction uh, of the, the soul. And I, you know, I've watched it with many believers over the years that get stuck in this cyclical pattern of, well, I want God, but God doesn't want me. And we're like, why, why do you say that? Well, because of, and they have this scripture, uh, whether it's the uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or whether it's uh, Hebrews 4 through 6, uh, that it is impossible for us to find repentance again uh, if we have once known this great salvation. And so, uh, and you see, there's part truths in this. There is a seriousness to the walk that we are called to walk, and yet we serve a God who specializes in mercy. And so as a result, his first response to you when you stumble is mercy. And if you will take the hand of mercy, it is outstretched. If you reject the hand of mercy, you know what is next from God? Mercy. And if you take that hand of mercy, even though you rejected it the first time, guess what? It's outstretched. And you know what the third thing is that God's going to give us? Mercy. God specializes in mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The concept is it wins out. If you put them head to head, his mercy is greater. However, if you reject that mercy, you reject that mercy, you reject that mercy, you reject that mercy, and then you part ways from this life, you know, you breathe your last, judgment will come. In other words, mercy is the intent of God, and that's very, very important for us to understand and not allow the devil to twist that. And that's last week, okay, but this is sort of a companion set and it's equally as challenging as last week. Some, some might even argue that this could be a harder message to give, but, you know, that's a debatable one. Uh, the two tenors. So I, have, I covered this message, uh, this idea, about six years ago and used this metaphor of the tenor. And so you'll see, even in the, in the picture, uh, in the graphic on the screen, it's Immediately when you hear the word tenor, you think of the singer, okay? Uh, Luciano Pavarotti uh, was a tenor, right? And so that's sort of what you think, which isn't bad. That's good because I'm going to use that. But tenor has a, 
has a double meaning. There's, a, there's another idea for the word tenor that I'm going to build on, which is going to unpack uh, a key idea, I think, that can be helpful in navigating forward in Christianity. And I'm going to give you the subtitle, which sort of gives you a little insight into the delicate nature of where we're going, discerning genuine salvation. And if any of you have ever been plagued with the idea of, I'm not really saved, maybe I'm not really saved, maybe this is all fake, maybe this isn't true, maybe it's true for everyone else, but it's not true for me, whew, that's some challenging territory that many of us can get caught in, and it's sort of like that uh, quicksand. I've never actually seen quicksand, but when I was growing up, quicksand was one of the most intriguing things. It seems like every storyline that was built for boys always had quicksand in it. And, you know, some guy gets in and he's like, oh, no, hey, whoa, I'm going down. And, and you know, and they can, they're holding on to tree limbs and trying to pull out. It was always the coolest stuff. Uh, but that's what he, test, test. Am I going in and out, uh, Nathan, or am I fine? Uh, test, test. We're fine? Okay. Uh, but this, is, this ter- territory can be like quicksand, all right? So let's, let's stick some good planks of the Word of God down and walk over it and not sink in it. So examining the Christian life, we're going to go to a Pauline statement. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, is not a very healthy church, which uh, actually could be helpful if you just knew that uh, from the beginning. Paul is going to express the love of God to this church over and over again. This is the second letter, okay? It's likely he probably even had more than this. But this is the 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. You know that it didn't say, have your pastor examine you to see if you're in the faith. Isn't that just fascinating? It's not like, hey, go to your priest and see if you're in the faith. It says, examine yourself, which means this is something I can't do from the outside. This is something you must do. This is something you are acquainted with in the interior of your life, and as a result, it is set before you as a task. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you are disqualified. Of course, this scripture can be a little daunting too, and it's not one that we gravitate towards and just stick on our refrigerator. You know, we don't usually frame it and stick it in our living room. It's like, eh. The Apostle John's test. So it's sort of hard. How do you test? So I'm going to go to the book of 1 John. And the book of 1 John, I mean, it's funny. If I were to say, Who's your favorite writer in the New Testament? Well, that's, that's sort of hard. But there's something like, you know, you could like Paul. There's nothing, I mean, we all love Paul, right? But John just sort of has a softness to him. Like even the book of John out of, out of, the, out of the gospel accounts is sort of hard not to call your favorite. I mean, that's just, that's really good. I mean, even the way it starts, in the beginning was the word. I mean, it's just so much better than a genealogy, right? <laughs> and... Then first John, I mean, all of his, his books, and of course you throw in Revelation, which is a little rougher, but they are so simple. It's almost like he's writing to a little child when he's talking, and he's coming down and he's speaking the truth, but when you speak to a child, it is so clear that you can't miss it, and some of us sort of wish we could miss it, because when first John is saying what it's saying, it's like, wow, that's so clear I don't even know what to do with it. And we stumble over the clarity. Isn't that an irony? So uh, let me read to you what we could call another sort of liege. This is a territory of battle that the enemy has leveraged against the church, even though ironically it is beautiful. It's the test. It's like, okay, so if you're going to test yourself, this is your test. Now, I just want you to 
recognize that as we go through this, this is somewhat rough, okay? This is, this is challenging. 1 John 3, 1 through 24. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you have the first dimension of this. And you're going to see these begin to come out. If someone has this hope in him, then there is a response that is obvious in every Christian. Well, that means they would purify themselves just as he is pure. Okay, so that would be like part of the test, the first John test. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Here's another uh, doozy for you guys. You ready for this one? Whoever abides in him does not sin. So if you're making your little list of testing yourself, it's like, oh, thank you, Eric. This is really helpful. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and, we shall, and, assure, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So, I'm not sure how well you're doing already, okay? We're entering into some territory that, to be honest, some of us just try and avoid. Paul is going to give us the command in 2 Corinthians to test ourselves. So John is saying, oh, guys, I heard that you were wanting to test yourself. So here, here's my chapter. It's called 1 John chapter 3. Why don't you test yourself? And we're like, thank you. Uh, and all of us, you know, and then the teachers pass around the grade report, and all of us are sort of concerned of looking at our, our score. 
It's like, I don't know that I did very well on that test. And that's obviously disconcerting. And so I'm just going to invite you into a little more discomfort before we move on. So let's get uncomfortable together and test ourselves. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, there's two ways of dealing with, with truth. One is you can hear it, and the other is you can hear it and do something. And when you are changed by God, there is a profound thing that is going to take place, and that is that you don't want to live as you once lived anymore. In fact, that's part of the beauty of salvation, is that you can now leave and depart from a previous life. And so as a result, you desire to be pure, as opposed to continuing to justify the fact that you're not. Whoever abides in him does not sin. It'd be fun to get all our bubble thoughts and collect them on this one and then reveal them. It's like, here is a bubble thought on that. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So, this is the word of God we just went through, okay? It is truth. It is unchanging. And it is good. And ironically, it is a representation of God's heart. Some of you might not be feeling his heart. Remember how I started out with mercy, 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 mercy? Some of you are like, I'm not feeling mercy here. Okay, I'm, not, I'm questioning everything right now. And that is precisely why a message like this can be important. So the devil can't play us. Okay, the word of God is to help establish us and to grow us stronger in our faith, not to weaken us, not to turn us inward, which is what has a tendency to happen when you read 1 John 3, is you have a tendency to turn inward and get caught there as opposed to turn outward towards your salvation. Ironically, the whole entire Bible is meant to turn us outward to see Jesus more clearly. So here's a question that might be going through some of your heads. If all are measured against this test, is anyone actually saved? Or is it just me <laughs> that feels like I don't quite measure up? How do we uphold the clear word of Scripture and yet not miss the intrinsic hope woven into it? Isn't Scripture supposed to give us hope? Isn't Scripture supposed to give us life? Isn't God's purpose to come in and through His Son to give us life and that much more abundant? How is this supplying us life? I feel like it's just weighing down on me. Now, it's truth. And God doesn't mind us getting uncomfortable. He really doesn't. And I could prove that throughout the entire Bible over and over and over again. God's sort of like, no, you know, I think it's okay that you're squirming a little right now. And then he waits just a little longer. Let's Lazarus linger in the grave for four days and then shows up at Bethany. It's like, Jesus, we could have done this a little more streamlined. If you're going to raise him from the dead... He dies, and then you just raise him. You don't need to have this passage of time, which creates all sorts of angst and difficulty. God is not against the working of challenge in our soul. However, there's a positive pain and a negative pain. And I mentioned this to the students this last week. 
when you're in a gym and you're, you're working out with weights, there's pain in the body, but it's a positive pain. It's a pain that grows you stronger. And if someone comes up to you and you know, sticks a knife in your side and twists it, that's a negative pain that leads to death, okay? They're both pain, but one is constructive, the other is destructive. The devil wants to bring destructive pain against us and harass our soul and to confuse us. God is not the author of confusion. God does not bring condemnation. So what we have is the need to settle this God's way. Introducing the tenor, okay? So you can think of the singer, and that's, that's perfectly fine. He has a beautiful singing voice. So what is a tenor? A tenor is a singing voice between baritone and alto, or counter-tenor, counter the highest of the ordinary adult male range. I always wanted to sing tenor. I did sing tenor, but there were always tenors that I really wanted to sing like, and I never could, and they were just like, way up there. It's like, oh, I want to sing like that. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an attractive range if, if you're a guy. Uh, that which holds the melody, the main thrust of a song, okay? And how about this one? That which marks the central character of one's life or habits. So if you were to say, uh, what is the tenor of Eric's life? That would be that which marks the central character of one's life or habits, okay? So there are certain things that mark each one of us. Have you ever noticed that? Like you could summarize each person, like I did with Dwight before the service when we were praying, and I said he's a man of action. That's a tenor in his life, okay? That's a good tenor to have, right? But you could have people in your life that's like, they're always late. You ever had that? You know, it's just like, and that's part of their reputation. It's the tenor of their life. You know, I don't know if that means that they're, you know, in danger of hellfire, but it is a quality that is defined in their life. The two tenors, okay, obviously that goes with the title of our, our message. So there are always two, and if you've hung around Ellerslie, you've heard me say this many times. There's a first and there's a second. And this is all throughout Scripture. I mean, even look at Scripture, it's divided up into two. Two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the first can't please God. But the second pleases God. And so you're going to see this all throughout the Bible. Cain, Abel, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Saul, David. All these times where there's a first and there's a second, the first is going to be rejected. It cannot please. It cannot do it. Like the Old Testament, the law is not bad, but it cannot save. Moses, Joshua. And you're going to see this constant throughout the scriptures. And then in the New Testament, you're going to see Paul unpack this at a whole other level. And you're going to see tares, wheat. You're going to see virgins without oil, virgins with oil. You're going to see goats, sheep. You're going to see these twos that are defined. And of course, the prominent one that Paul is going to use to teach and to unpack the doctrine of Jesus Christ and how this Christian life works is flesh and spirit. One of the big ones throughout Scripture is Adam, last Adam, which is really weird to call Jesus the last Adam, and it's, he's also called the second man. It's like, well, there was 77 generations in between. Yeah, but they're both, in a sense, the Son of God, if you want to say it that way. Adam is born supernaturally by God, and there's one other guy that fits that mat pattern, and that's Jesus. And if you're in Adam, you die. 
If you're a descendant of Adam, well, you share in Adam's heritage, his descendancy, which is sin, which leads to death. It's called the law of sin and death, or you sin, you die. But Jesus is going to start a new lineage. And unless you transfer from the lineage of Adam to the lineage of Christ, you remain in condemnation. But if you will repent and put off the old man with his deeds and clothe yourself by faith in Christ, you live. And now the death that is upon Adam is no longer yours, which is why Jesus says, unless a man be born again, the way we could say it for our purposes, unless he be born twice, unless he is a second man, he cannot have life. And so as a result, this becomes a very, very significant and pertinent construct in Scripture. So the two tenors. So we're going to break it up into two. First one, tenor number one, self. You see, this is the way that all of us are wired. We're wired to sing the song ourselves. Remember, the tenor is the main melody line in a song. And so whoever has the tenor usually is given the melody line. And so we want to sing the melody line. I don't want to be an accompanying voice. I want to be the main feature. I want to be the tenor. And so as a result, we'll call this the self-singing tenor, the essence of sin. It's mine. This is my life. I want to do it my way. Okay, this song, if you will, is a dead giveaway that something's wrong in your life. But there's another tenor, and that is going to be the tenor number two, Jesus. Christ's singing tenor, the essence of righteousness. You see, you are going to be singing a song in your life, and what John is bringing up and what Paul was bringing up in 2 Corinthians is this exact thing. Who's singing the song in your life? Test yourself to see who's singing the song. Is it still you singing about you? Is this life all about you? Because if you're in Christ, it can't be all about you. That's basically what 1 John 3 is talking about. However, we stumble over the wording of it. But that's what John's saying. If you're, if you're still a first tenor, then you're going to be singing a song known as sin. That's what your, your life is going to be. But if you're in Christ, your song changes. And because you're no longer singing your melody line, you're singing his. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, which sort of unpacks this idea of first and second tenor. Okay, so you're go, I'm, this is going to just help you unpack it because I'm going to insert the words tenor number one and tenor number two into the flow. And so it is written, the first man, over here, Adam, tenor number one, became a living being. The last Adam, tenor number two, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, or tenor number two, is not first, but the natural, tenor number one. And afterward, the spiritual, tenor number two. The first man, tenor number, tenor number one, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, tenor number two, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, tenor number one, so also are those who are made of dust. And, and as is the heavenly man, tenor number two, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, tenor, tenor number one, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So self-fulfillment versus God-fulfillment. I think that's a good way of saying it. Uh, there is a, a term in Scripture uh, in the Greek word, which I'm going to unpack here in the upcoming uh, slides, called suche. And this is like this part of our life that one of the definitions of it is the seat of fulfillment. And I think that's pretty, a pretty good description. It's like, 
No, this is about me. It's like you're sitting in your throne. I want, to, I want this life to be about me, for me, and unto me. I want all praise to be mine. That is the essence of sin. And so self-fulfillment is actually what we're being saved from. Isn't that an irony? Because it's like, isn't that what we're all after? Well, if you're after that, that's your problem. You see, what you have to do is you have to give up your suke. And unless a man gives up his suke, gives up his seat of fulfillment, which I'll go into in just a second, he cannot follow Christ. He cannot have that life. Because unless you're denying that dimension of your life, you can't live. You have to change out that core of what you are about. Are you about you or are you about him? And when you're about him, everything changes. The song you now sing is a different song. So Matthew 16, 25, and you're going to notice Matthew 10, 39, Mark 8, 35, Luke 17, 33, and John 12, 25 all say the same thing. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So that term for life is suke. So if you hold on to that seat of fulfillment and say, it's my seat, and you hold on to it, you're going to lose life. But if you give it up for his sake and you bend your knee and say, Lord, you take that seat. This is about you now. You find life. And this is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven right there. Because everything about us is off. We're wired, you know, we got off at the Garden of Eden. Something's twisted. And God's saying, I'm coming to set that right. I'm set, I've come to untwist what is twisted. But for you to be untwisted, you need to trust me. You need to trust that I know how to do this. Can you give up that suke? But my suke, that's like what I'm about, my life, my, my fulfillment. Yeah, but can you give that up to me and trust me that I know what you're built for? And if you hold on to it, you die. If you give it up, you find it in a capital version, capital L life. You find what you are designed for. You've never been so filled with life and purpose as when you give up your suke. So here's our word, suke. Uh, obviously, it looks like psyche, doesn't it? Isn't, isn't that interesting? You begin to realize this is the center of how we are thinking and processing. The breath of life, the soul, the center of feeling and longing, the seat of fulfillment. This, unless a man gives this up, he can't follow me. This is where it starts. This is the essence of the transaction of the kingdom of heaven right here. It's right at the suke. And if you find yourself like Saul, do you remember Saul? Saul was given the, this isn't Paul Saul. This is Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. He is given a, a kingdom. He has a throne. And then God says, mm, you've lost that throne. I'm giving it to a better man. What should Saul have done? Because he's saying the same thing to me and you. You've blown it. You've sinned. I'm giving that throne to someone who is better. His name is Jesus. But what does Saul do? He holds on to his throne and throws javelins at the better man. And that's what we oftentimes do as well. We fight off the very one who wants to save us, who wants to save Israel. This nation has a Savior known as the Son of David, Jesus Christ. 
but we need to relinquish our hold on that throne. The change of song. So when you transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the dear son, there is a change of tenor. And it's not just a change of who's singing and whose melody line you're singing. It's a completely different song. The first one, I, I was trying to come up with something that sounded really dark and evil, right? So for those of you that are big fans of death metal, I'm sure this is an offense, right? Uh, it's not much of a blow to me because I'm not a fan, right? But death metal lyrics, and I'm not going to give you any death metal lyrics to give you an illustration. I figured that probably wouldn't be the best idea. But something that is celebrating darkness, okay? That is just not what we're about as Christians. That's not what we do. And so it's, it's, it's extreme when you change kingdoms from singing death metal lyrics to singing a Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me. No, no one's going to, on the outside, think that that's the same song. They're completely different songs. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is going to be a key that unlocks this message. When you sing death metal lyrics, you, know, you can sing them imperfectly. You can get the lyrics wrong. You can pop your P's. There's various things, mistakes you can make in singing your song of darkness uh, perfectly, right? Same is true in the kingdom of heaven. When you come into the kingdom of heaven, you are singing a different song, but you may do it imperfectly. You may pop your P. Do you guys know what a popping P is? It's when you're in a microphone and you have your P sounds and it's like, and it explodes. Sorry, when I do that, you guys get some saliva on you down here. Uh, however, and you could sing incorrectly, you could be off key, but that doesn't mean you're still singing death metal lyrics. You're actually singing a new song, you're just singing it imperfectly. And what I would like to say is, welcome to the understanding of the kingdom. See, what Paul, what Paul is saying and what John is saying is, if you're still singing the death metal, this is a serious issue. We don't continue singing this song that celebrates darkness, that celebrates selfishness, that pre preserves life uh, for you at all costs. That cannot be a part. However, in this zone, when you are singing a new song, we don't sing it perfectly. But what we desire is to sing it perfectly. So the one who is born of God desires to grow up unto a full maturity to sing this Sunday school round of J Jesus Loves Me with perfection. However, we are being sanctified. You start out as a little baby in this kingdom. You're a newborn. And as a newborn, you recognize that that newborn is designed to scale cliffs and to run marathons. But guess what? You recognize that a newborn isn't going to do that just yet. But the newborn is going to develop physiologically. And as a result, the evidence that they are a newborn is they are actually growing in a new kingdom. They're growing in a new manner. They're growing in a new life. When they are physiologically developing, they're imperfect. They're not the perfect ex expression of what a grown-up, mature adult could do physically. However, when they're toddling, a father, a good father, is not going to kick them and say, get rid of that toddle. A good father recognizes that a toddle is par part of the growth. And so as a result, in the kingdom of heaven, we need to recognize we need to, at first, discover which song is being sung. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. What song are you singing? Are you still holding on to your suke? Saying, no, God, this life is about me, and I refuse to trust it to you. Or have you trusted your life to God, 
and you are a toddler. You're singing a new song, but you're doing it imperfectly. And as a result, when you read 1 John chapter 3, the devil's like poking at you saying, see, see, look at that fault. And yet it's a flaw in how you're singing the right song. And that's a big difference. So the tenor changes. When you make this shift of kingdoms, the tenor changes, the lyrics change, the entire song is different. You know, Eric Ludy doesn't read through 1 John chapter 3 and stumble and start questioning my salvation. because how could you make it through, Eric, without doing that? Because I know that the tenor of my life is transformed. If you saw old Eric, you would see the difference too. I was about me. My thoughts were about me. It's what I looked like. It's what I was coming across like. It's like, hey, this is my life. These are my dreams. These are my ambitions. Don't touch them. Don't mess with them. I want to see them fulfilled. I have one shot at this thing called life, and I want to live it for me. Now it's completely different. I want Jesus to be glorified. I want you to know Jesus. I want my life to be spent correctly while I'm here on earth. I have one shot at this thing called life, and I want him to be seen. I want him to maximize his purpose in and through me. And yet, if you were to watch Eric Ludy's life over here, you're going to notice that Eric doesn't do that perfectly. Should I question everything because I'm fumbling and stumbling in the way I do this new mission, which is all about Jesus? Well, that would be a disaster, wouldn't it, if I started questioning everything every time I was imperfect? Because then wouldn't we spend our entire life questioning instead of believing? And so as a result, that's why this message is important. You need to know where you are, which song you're singing. If you are singing this song, it's important that you stop singing this song and that you forsake this first song of self. But if you are singing the second song, praise God, now you need to receive that mercy, that grace for help in time of need. So as you're navigating through this journey, you rise up in the mercy of God, in the grace of God, and that when you fall short, you immediately say, Lord, thank you for your shed blood. And you keep growing, you keep purifying, you keep being sanctified. But is the Sunday school round of Jesus loved me perfect? So both can hit off notes, both can be too loud, both can involve spittle and splattering pee pops, both can have broken guitar strings, both can be sung wrongly. But they're two different songs. So what I want you to do, I don't mind a little discomfort in you, but what I don't want is the wrong sort of discomfort. I don't want you questioning solid foundation of faith in Christ. If you've believed in Christ, if you've put your confidence in Christ, praise God. Stand strong upon that. If you are still holding on going, I don't know that I really want to be saved. I don't know that I really want a Savior. I don't know that he can really do it. Well, those are different issues, completely different issues that need to be addressed. But when the song is changed, it is obvious to the singer and to the audience, though it be an imperfect version of Jesus Loves Me, the song is entirely different. The tenor has changed, though the song is not yet being sung the way tenor two fully intends. Tenor two can sing it perfectly. When he came in this body, he sang the song of tenor two perfectly. Now the tenor two has moved in, and he's like warming up his voice, and we're like, oh, what was that? In other words, he's working inside of us to get his song out, but it's going to come out very imperfectly. Why? We've never sung it before. Uh, this morning, Leslie and I were uh, not feeling vocally very sharp. I'll just put it that way. And uh, so we 
went to the piano and started singing our songs because we're going to be doing some low-level worship leading uh, here after this message. And my voice was not quite doing what it was supposed to, right? And so we've been probably both panicking a little throughout this message, you know, thinking that that's following, especially a message about the two tenors. It's like, can you believe the timing for that? And yet, you know, why would my voice not be perfect uh, in the early morning hours? Well, I've had a lot of allergies, and I just woke up. You know, those are pretty good reasons, right? And the same is true with the kingdom of heaven. If you are new at this, if you are just beginning to sing something like turning outward and showing mercy instead of being harsh and critical towards people, it's like God convicts you about this critical thing. He's like, yeah, that's not how the song goes. You're like, oh, well, I guess I'm supposed to forgive. I'm supposed to show mercy. When you're first doing it, it's not your normal habit. It, you ever had it where you're sending a, a and this is, maybe, maybe times have changed where digitally the, this, this is different, but this is a classic issue. You buy a new printer and you attach the new printer. Now they're all Bluetooth, but you, know, you, you attach the, old, the new printer and you go to print and nothing happens. You're like, what in the world? And then you work on it for an hour and then finally realize that you're sending it to the old printer. You ever done that? Where it's just like, what in the world? Why isn't this printing? Well, you're sending it to the wrong printer. You have a new printer, but you need to deliberately choose and select it. Same is true in your Christian life. You are so used to defaulting to old ways. You have a new song that is warming up inside of you, but you need to deliberately choose to sing it. You need to agree with it at every turn. The fact that you will fumble and return and sing the wrong song again, you're like, wait, what was I doing? That? No, no, no is a definite sign that you don't want to. You're like, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to sing his song. You feel conviction. You desire to sing his song. You're not rebelling and saying, I don't want to sing that ridiculous Sunday school song. No more of that. That's a whole different problem. But if you're like, "Uh, God, I just sort of blew one of the notes there. I just popped a huge P. My guitar string just blew off on that one. It didn't sound very good. What what is he going to say? Get out of my kingdom. No. He says, so let's try it again. Let's try it again. Get, get, here's a new guitar string. Let's stick that on. Let's get this right. Okay, he's constantly training us. He has a song he wants to get out, but his response is mercy. Then his next response is mercy. Then his next response is mercy. His Holy Spirit has been given us so that we would be sanctified, which means we're not made perfect instantaneously. We're in the process of being trained, remodeled, remade by God. It's okay to grow up. 1 John 3.10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there's certain behaviors over here. In other words, practicing righteousness. Now most of us, when we hear that, we're thinking, are perfectly righteous. Okay, no, we're practicing righteousness. We're like, now how does that song go again? And our guitar string goes, ding! And, and we're like, oh, so, so sorry. In other words, well, what, what are we doing? We're actually, we want to sing the right song. That's what we're doing. We're practicing righteousness, if you want to say it that way. We're singing a song, but it might sound a little like Eric's uh, holy, holy, holy this morning uh, when he was warming up. And it was like, well, this is high key for that. Uh, and now we're stuck in it because we didn't have any more time to change it. So and it's like, well, this is a little high. 
Yeah, and that's the way the Christian life can feel at times too. And what do you need to do? You need to train your voice. If any of you are singers, you understand that, that you might start with a note that's like, ooh, that's, that's a little high for me. What do you do? You train. You practice righteousness. See, my desire is to sing that note well. The fact that I haven't sung it well up to this point does not mean I'm not a Christian. It means I'm a Christian in training. I am being built to perfectly reflect him. Right now, it's an imperfect reflection of his perfection. Welcome to Christianity. But the test of you being in the faith is that you're singing a different song. You're no longer practicing self saying, hey, this is for me. I don't care about you, God. I don't care about your conviction. I don't want to hear it. I want to sing my death metal lyrics. Instead, you're saying, no, God, I've given that up. I want to sing your song. I just don't know how to do it yet. Could you train me? I want to practice righteousness. I don't want to think about myself anymore. Selfishness is the opposite of love. It's the opposite of loving your brother. When you have Jesus move in and the the tenor number two move in, You know what he's going to say? Now it's about others. I want you to love them. And so this is part of the most basic package that is going to take place in us as believers. Changing the tenor. How does one know when the tenor has changed? So let's use a house as an illustration. Jesus uses houses as illustrations. So I think it's a good one uh, for us. Let's look at Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So you hear the word of God and you believe it. You enter into a different realm. So we're calling that tenor number two, right? But it's a house built on a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Uh Uh-oh, we have another house here to compare it to and contrast it to. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. So we seem to have two foundations. One that is solid and it's based on faith in his word, trusting him. The second one obviously seems to be a different sort of foundation. I always uh, you know, say sand is merely crushed up rock. So it's sort of like it's your own belief system. It's taking what you want uh, from God. It's like, I'll take that little truth maybe over here and we'll sort of blend it together. It'll be a little sand beneath us. Hey, this is good. This is my foundation. This is the way I think it should be. Well, let's test it with some winds and rains. The whole thing's going to collapse. Ultimately, the house built incorrectly shows itself. And we're able to see that it's missing something. Now, I, if I had a good picture up on the screen it would be a picture of a house that's been burnt to the ground. And so maybe you still have a slab of concrete there and you have like the door frame and you have this chimney back there, but the rest of it's just burnt down. It's, it's charred. And you see, outside of Christ, that's what we are. We were designed as a house, as a dwelling place for God, but something's gone terribly wrong. And as a result, if you are, you know, someone could say, uh, do you have the house? Are you in Christ? Oh, look at this. I have a, con- I have a foundation here. I have a charred doorway and I have a chimney. Yeah, but what are the, what's the storm going to prove? The storm that's coming is going to prove that that is not a house. It is going to actually showcase an incorrect foundation. Whereas a house built correctly proves in and through different trials when the storms come that it has something. Even if it's imperfect, it still has something. So we'll give five tests. We'll call it the rain test, the cold test, the heat test, the wind test, 
and the winter test. So remember, we're, we're testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So here's the way we could say it. We're testing ourselves to see if we have a bona fide house. Are we in Christ? Is he our house? Have we moved into Christ, and are we secure in that? Because if we're still just our charred, found, charred house with you know, the door frame and, and, the, uh, and the fireplace, you know, the chimney that's sitting there, it's like, okay, when these things happen, you have the rain, Guess what? Rain is a dead giveaway that you don't really have a house. Why? Because you're soaked. If you don't have a house, you're like, I have a house, and then psh, you have a flood in the middle of your, your living room, and you know, you're drenched. Your couch is sitting there totally soaked. It's like, huh, okay, maybe something's off here. That's exactly right. If you are getting drenched when the rain comes, you have to at least pause and question it. Now, I'm going to contrast two things. There has to be some gentleness and some sensitivity in how I do this. But there is a very real thing that we need to discover in our soul if it's true, and that is, I'm not in the house. You need to know if you're not in the house. That's a very, very important thing to do. I'm not presuming that you're not in the house. I'm just saying there's a reason why it's brought up in Scripture. You don't want to presume upon God. You want to know. Faith is knowing. The Holy Spirit brings assurance you're not supposed to be wobbly need on this. However, let's imagine that it rains. It's pretty obvious when you don't have a, a roof and you don't have walls when it rains. It's sort of a dead giveaway. However, some of us have a panic. We're genuine homes, but we have a puddle in our kitchen when it rains. We're like, ah, I got a puddle. Does that mean it's not a real house? No, it actually could be a real house with a leak problem. Okay, You're, you have a hole in the roof. That hole is not good to have, so it's not like I'm going to support the hole and I'm going to say, go hole. No, I'm not cheering on the hole in your roof, but there's a big difference between not having a roof and not even having a home and having a home but having some problems with your home because you have not maintained it well. You have not understood that you're supposed to install this or you're supposed to close the windows here during winter storms. In other words, you have not been groomed and discipled in how to care for your home well, which is then a different sort of rebuke to the soul. It's a different form of encouragement. It's not, hey, get yourself a home. It's like, no, shut the window. There's a winter storm. If you want it to be nice and toasty warm in the middle of winter, that window needs to be closed. So the homeless and the housed, there's a difference between the two. Okay, a homeless person which is what we don't want to be in this story, is someone who does not have the protection of Christ. It's sort of like the arkless and the arced, those that are in the ark of Noah and those that are on the outside. You know, you shouldn't be confused of like, where am I? Which position am I in? Am I in the ark or am I not in the ark? You need to know where you stand. And it's very, very critical for you to have the confidence that you are in Christ. You don't want to be wobbly on that. The homeless and the housed. So the signs of homelessness. The proofs that your home is indeed no home at all. When it rains, you get wet. When it gets cold, you freeze. If you didn't have any walls, could you imagine? I mean, if it got cold, you're going to be cold. When it gets warm, you roast. Middle of July, Colorado. Or how about middle of July, Phoenix, Arizona? Uh, what, I had someone from Phoenix here last week who said 116 degrees. Yeah, so what's it going to be? If you're homeless, what's the temperature? 116 degrees. If you have a home with a good AC unit, 
uh, I mean, you could get that puppy down to 70, 69. You know, that's a really high heating bill, but you know, you can do it. Uh, when the wind blows, your hair gets rustled. If you're in a home and there's gusting winds outside, you'll notice your hair will stay exactly as it ought to be. But when you don't have a home, pff, your hairdo just got blown away, right? The season of autumn pleasure and beauty is followed by winter chill. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season. And the same is true. You could say, hey, I don't need a home. I'm totally fine. Yeah, through the summer and, uh, you know, late fall, you know, you might be able to pull that off. But then winter chill comes and the pleasure of sin just subtly <laughs> disappeared. The qualities of a genuine house, the proofs that your home is indeed a genuine home. When it rains, you remain dry. When it gets cold, you stay warm. When it gets warm, you stay temperate. When the wind blows, you do not feel it upon your skin. When autumn closes and winter comes, the temperature and character of your house remains the same. In a sense, I just read to you 1 John chapter 3, right there, which is one of the challenges is John is talking about how a home is supposed to function. If you have a home, this is what it's like. And for all, for all of us in here that have a home, we could say, yeah, that's what it's like, but in your spiritual life, when it rains, in other words, you have a trial on your life, uh, did you stay dry? Because some of you are like, I feel like I got a little wet through that one. Uh, what does that mean to my soul? And when it gets cold, you know, you have false accusation that comes against you. You have, uh, so you're low in the finances and you started to panic and gave way to anxiety, right? It's like, oh no, does that mean I'm not in the faith? And so these are facts about a home. This is what John is saying in 1 John chapter 3. So the inspector is going to come in, and we're going to say, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So let's walk through this. When it rains, do you experience a flood, a dripping, any puddling, or perfect dryness? So it would be great, and all of us want to say perfect dryness, right? But what I want you to do, remember, I can't test you. You have to test yourself. So when these trials come against you, do you find yourself in flood conditions, totally drenched? I mean, you're missing a roof. You don't even have a roof. Or are you actually still having havoc from the devil, maybe that you shouldn't have? You see, if I'm in a home, like let's say I visit your home and I'm an inspector, and I'm like, hmm, nice home. Uh, and yet you have all your windows open on this side, and it's like a gusting storm. And you're like, I can't figure out why my lamp keeps blowing over and the bulb keeps breaking. It's like, well, sir, uh, that window right there is actually uh, receiving a lot of wind. Uh, and since it's open instead of closed, that's the results, broken lamps. Okay, so you may have broken lamps. That doesn't mean you don't have a home. It means you have a point of disobedience in your life. God says in his word, keep the windows closed. And what are you doing? You keep opening it. And so as the Holy Spirit convicts you and corrects you, what are you going to do now? You see... Are you going to purify yourself as he is pure, or are you going to rebel and say, I don't care? You see, when you start saying, I don't care, you are in a dangerous place. But if you start saying, Lord, I need grace for this. I recognize that I ha haven't handled this home you've given me well, and Lord, I'm so sorry. You see, that humility and that repentance is actually critical. It's a, it's a beautiful sign of how a man or woman runs their home. When the temperature descends below 45 degrees, uh-oh, does your thermometer inside the home read the same as the outdoor temperature? That's not good. Say it's 30 degrees outside, is your home 30 degrees? That's not a good sign. That means you might be missing some walls. 
Is it lower than 70 degrees? Because some of you, it's like it's getting cold and your furnace isn't quite working very well. Have you ever had those panic points? It's like, my furnace isn't working well. It doesn't mean you don't have a home and it doesn't mean you don't have a furnace. It might mean you need to clean your furnace. It might mean there's things that have entered into your furnace that need to actually be cleaned. Your maintenance of your home, which is very real, your home is real, but it hasn't been maintained as God intended, which still matters, but it's a different sort of emphasis to see if you're in the faith. Or does it read 70 degrees indoors? Well, that would be nice. When the temperature rises above 90 degrees, does your thermometer inside your home read the same as the outdoor temperature? Higher than 70 degrees, or does it read 70 degrees indoors? Are you maintaining a temperate environment? When the wind blows, does it force you to rebuild walls, rehang curtains and drapes, reset decorations, and bring in a backhoe to remove the wind-strewn debris? Wouldn't that be a rough thing? Every time a difficulty comes into your life, it just totally destroys your home? That wouldn't be a good sign. You see, we are supposed to be marked by peace. The peace of God rules in our hearts. And so as a result, one of my best mental pictures for that is like one of those ancient like, artifacts that you dig up in, a, you know, a, a, in a, some kind of excavation. And it's like some insect, some dinosaur you know, time period insect that's like stuck in a block of resin. So you can see them. It's in a block of resin. And so here's what peace is. It's like, that's us, and we're in Christ. And this big sledgehammer comes out and hits the block of resin. The block of resin bounces around the room. And you pick it back up, and the insect hasn't moved. Still. And that's what we're supposed to be. It doesn't matter what hits us, we're stable. However, some of us haven't proven to be stable. We move around way too much. You see, we have all that we need in Christ, but we have not been exercising that grace. When the autumn season concludes and winter begins, does the atmosphere of your indoor life look like winter too? When it snows, is your sofa covered with snow? When it sleets, is your kitchen floor lacquered with sleet? When it freezes, do your pipes freeze? Do you have any drafts? Do you have any sicknesses? Do you have any busted pipes? Or is winter just like summer inside your home? The difference between the homeless and the housed. Both have difficulties, but the homeless have difficulties that lead to death whereas the housed have difficulties that lead to frustrations, hindrances, and inconveniences. For those of you that are homeowners, you know what I mean by that. You know, you, you have a home, but things will break, and you know, you have to get a new AC unit, you have to do this. You have to constantly maintain it. It's a real frustrating thing. It'd be really nice if they invented a home someday that maintained itself, right? But you have to maintain it. It's the same thing with the Christian life. However, your frustrations are very different than a homeless person. When it's negative 30 outside and you're a homeless person, it's very different than if you have a home. Same temperature, but it doesn't threaten your life. It might bust a pipe, but it isn't going to bust your life. See, if you're homeless, those trials kill you. Whereas if you're in a house, you have a preservation. It's known as Jesus Christ in the spiritual sense. The tenor of the problems of the homeless and the housed is, total, is wholly different. They have a different tenor to their life, and their problems have a different tenor. The homeless have a tenor, and that is simple things can actually lead to their death. Changes of weather can lead to death. Whereas for us, it doesn't matter what happens, we're going to live forever in Christ, but we still have a lot of embattlements along the way because we have house maintenance, and we have an enemy who loves to come against our house and try and beat it down. However, it's not going to fall. So let's use an example of rain. So the homeless, this, this is a, the proof, 
The proofs there is no real roof and no real walls. So this is for the, the homeless. The proof that there is no real roof and no real walls is that they're miserable, cold, there's dampness, mold, fungus, sickness, and death. Okay, that's just miserable. Okay, that's what we don't want. Now, how about the housed? The evidence that the upkeep of the house is improper. There's leaks, puddling, repairs, frustrations, hindrances, and inconveniences. The tenor of their problems are very different. You still have problems being a homeowner or being in, in Christ. You still have challenges, but your issues are different than someone who is outside of Christ. Spiritual winds and rains. A quick list of critical sins. Evidence that there is indeed a problem on the property. Now, I want you to look at these what I, seven, I'm calling them critical sins. These are what I'm going to call doorway sins. These are dead giveaways that something is wrong. It does not mean you don't have Jesus. It just means that you have not been maintaining, potentially. However, these are big issues. And so let's start exercising this. Unforgiveness, lying, disobedience, self-pity, disrespect, frustration, anxiety. So the key question, what is the tenor of the problem? So let's start with an example of unforgiveness. Is this a problem of homelessness or home maintenance? Because it's very clear in Scripture that you are to forgive. And in fact, it's one of the most clear things you can get out of Scripture, other than that Jesus is your one and only Savior, is when you come to him, as he is forgiving you, you need to forgive. And so it's not an optional bonus package to the Christian life. It's part and parcel. And so... However, is this a problem of homelessness or home maintenance? Because that doesn't mean if you're in Christ, you're not struggling with unforgiveness. And that's why I'm going to walk through this. There's, there's a two different, there's a homeless response to unforgiveness, and there's a home with need of repair uh, response. Question number one, is the, is the unforgiveness a decided unwillingness to forgive? Like, I will not forgive that person. Okay, that's dangerous. An unbarred hatred and hot anger, a growing resentment, and a poisonous bitterness of soul refusing to yield its ground. No. In fact, you're fostering hatred. You're fostering an animosity. You are allowing the bitterness to literally take over your soul. Not good, guys. Okay? That's dangerous. It is not something that can actually remain in the kingdom of heaven. No. Someone who is born of Christ cannot participate in that. That's what you're seeing in 1 John 3. No, we, we don't participate in that. Now look at this one. Question number two. Or is the unforgiveness, in other words, in both of these situations, there's a problem. There's something known as unforgiveness. Because as a believer, we should just forgive. First thing. It's not even an option. We don't even need to consider it. No, I'm forgiving because Christ forgave me. However, some of you have been hurt at a very, very deep level. And, the, and it's hard. And I, I, that's where the, the need for gentleness in this message is real. It does not mean that I'm going to encourage your unforgiveness any longer. But you do need to know the difference of tenor of these two problems. Is the unforgiveness a struggle to forgive? There's a difference between being defiant about forgiving, saying, no, I refuse to participate in the Christ behavior. I, I, I want to cultivate hatred inside of me. And saying, God, I am really struggling here. This, this hurts so deep. I want to, but I don't know how to. Or how about this? A slowness to obey. Have you ever had it where God's talking to you and you're like trying to act like you're not hearing him? You're like, oh, yeah, so, you know, what's the temperature today? Let me get my phone out really quick and get some dings and, you know, bleeps on it as quickly as I can before I actually hear God. 
You see, God's saying something to you, but you don't know if you want to hear it. Okay, by the way, this doesn't mean you don't have a house. It might mean very, it might be even a greater evidence that you have a house. The Holy Spirit is all over you, right? He's speaking to you, however you're struggling. And or a rationalization of why unforgiveness in this case might be permissible. Well, I know Jesus says that I, I need to always forgive, but in this case, I think he would understand. Now, that second option is not good, okay? Let me, let me give this summary. Note, both options just mentioned are disastrous to the soul. But one shows signs of homelessness, while the other indicates a serious leak inside what could be a genuine home. Okay, and that's why I'm trying to show you the difference in tenor. If you understand tenor, you can rest in this area of your life and recognize, no, I am in the faith, but the Holy Spirit is really working me over saying, okay, then let me do what I need to do in your life. You want to know why you have that leak? Mm-hmm. That resentment shouldn't be in your kitchen floor. That puddle there, that shouldn't be there. And you're feeling conviction over that puddle. Don't just clean up the puddle and let it continue to drip. Fix the roof. And that roof is going to be fixed by forgiving. In other words, we need to walk in agreement with God. It does not mean we don't have a home. It just means we need to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring about a fix. What is the tenor? Is unforgiveness, hatred, and hot anger, resentment, and bitterness the tenor of, your li of the life in question? Is this the key defining melody being sung within the life under scrutiny? You know, if you hang around someone, you can answer the question about the tenor of their life. You know, if you've ever seen someone with such bitterness and such hatred, that becomes the tenor of their life. Where you could say, oh, you know, that, that's about the summary. They are really an angry person. However, there's some of us that aren't angry people as a tenor, but we've had some anger, and we've had some difficulty in this area. It does not mean you don't have a, ho a house. It does not mean you're not in Christ. It just means the devil is playing you, and you need to allow the Holy Spirit to correct that. The tenor of a life with Christ cannot be one of sin and of self, and that's what 1 John chapter 3 is saying. You cannot just live over here, okay? When you are convicted, you need to respond, and God has given you this opportunity to be in Christ. And he's given you his Holy Spirit. And he desires you to grow up. But you cannot continue to live for self and for self-fulfillment. If you want to grow in Christ, you need to let that go. So if there's any question on that, I mean, the key today is to let go of that seed of fulfillment and to say, God, I just want you. I want your agenda in my life. My life is yours. Take it. However, some of us, we're already in that, but we are being convicted even as we touch on some of these things, and we're like, God, I feel so feeble, I feel, I feel weak, I feel immature in this growth. Well, that's not that unusual. However, allow his grace to enter in to not just supply mercy and forgiveness, but grace to help so that you can close doors of unforgiveness. Though the life may have leaks, puddles, and some damp corners, its tenor should demonstrate the melody of the line of the song, Jesus Loves Me. Though the song be sung imperfectly. And the life should also demonstrate that leaks are fixed, puddles are mopped up, and damp corners are solved by the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So if you were to look at the life of Eric, I would love to be able to say that there were never any leaks, never any lamps that got tipped over and the bulb, you know, that uh, shattered. It would sound so much more impressive, wouldn't it? However, one of the things I could say 
is that I'm very malleable to correction. And that's something I know in my own soul. When the Spirit of God corrects me, I might try and come up with an excuse. Don't get me wrong. I, I might come up with a justification. However, it can't stand. And ultimately, it will melt away. I'll be like, yes. All right, I need to make that right. Mm, wow. Yes, Lord. Okay, and that's been the tenor of my life. And so as a result, I have a resting place in Christ because I know that I desire to purify myself as he is pure. But that's not because I am without any sinful propensity, nor is it that I've not made any mistakes. I know exactly where to go when I do. And it is a sure sign to me that I am intimately tied to Christ Jesus. A life in need of Christ, one in which the roof and walls are missing. So let's talk about the dangerous doors. Unforgiveness. This is a door. It opens the door to hatred and hot anger, resentment and bitterness. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Let's look at lying or falsehood and exaggeration. This opens the door to a life of deception, con, duplicity, and hypocrisy. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? You see, if you're defined by these behaviors, that should strike something in you to say, Lord, I need an encounter with you. I do not want to remain this way. Disobedience. It opens the door to rebellion and blasphemy of God. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Self-pity. This opens the door to complaining, grumbling, a critical fault-finding nature, accusation, and the self-absorbed victim mentality. One of the most dangerous things on earth is the victim mentality. Don't touch it. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Pride and disrespect. This opens the door to lust, sexual deviancy, and sexual addiction. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Irritation and frustration. This opens the door to untempered anger, rage, abuse, and murder. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Anxiety. This opens the door to fear, foreboding, fretting, paranoia, and paralysis. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? What does the door of Christ open up to? So when we are going to depart from this first way of living and enter into Christ, what are we entering into? Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The heavenly door. When unforgiveness beckons, Christ offers access to the power of forgiveness. So this is amazing, guys. When you put off Adam, when you give up that seat of fulfillment, and you say, Lord, you are deserving of my life. I don't want to be in control of my life. I want you to have it. And you transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. And now he holds that seat in your life. You have access to the heavenly throne room of grace. And everything you need for life and godliness is given you. And so say you are harmed. Say that there is a grievance that is brought against you, which is not an abnormal thing to happen in life. This could happen daily for some of us. However, you have something. Just sort of like a house 
may have an AC unit, and the heat is coming up, but guess what? What does that house have? An AC unit. What do you need to do? Turn on the AC unit. And that's the same thing we do in our spiritual life. Turn on the unforgiveness. We have the capacity in Christ to actually forgive. We have power to do it. But we must agree with that. And so as a result, my exhortation to you is to not allow the devil to cloud your position. If you're in Christ, stand in Christ by faith. The fact that you're imperfect in that position, that's actually part of the entire journey for all of us. You see, he is perfect. Underneath this clothing of perfection is a work in process known as us. But we are aimed towards being perfected. And that's what gives us that sense of knowing I'm in Christ. My song is different. I'm no, I'm no longer like what I used to be. I still have propensities towards behaving like that, but that no longer defines me. That's no longer the tenor of my life. And so now, if you have unforgiveness or the bait of it, what do you do? Christ offers access to the power of forgiveness. Use it. Turn on the AC unit. When lying beckons, Christ offers access to the power of boldness and the confession of sin. You ever had it where you're like, no, towards the bait to use your tongue wrongly? I mean, if you just say that lie, it, in your mind, it's going to make your life easier because it's not gonna make you look bad. It's going to sort of cover up what you did. And yet when you choose to agree with the lie, it, it cancels out so much of the strength of your life. It nullifies the work of grace. Don't participate in it. It's like carving a hole in your roof and saying, oh, that won't matter. Well, the next rain, you're going to get a whole bunch of that rain inside of your house. Why? Because you misused this tongue. You spoke a lie instead of the truth. It does not mean that you are not in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're homeless. It just means that you're mishandling this gift of grace that you've been given. So what should you do? Tell the truth. Correct that lie. Repair that roof. When disobedience beckons, Christ offers access to the power to obey and to do that which is right and godly. When self-pity beckons, Christ offers access to the power to praise him and give thanks in all things. When pride and disrespect beckon, Christ offers access to the power to be humble, to love, and to honor, edify, and encourage others. When irritation and frustration beckons, Christ offers access to the power of heavenly patience and the grace to rejoice always and in every circumstance. When anxiety beckons, Christ offers access to soundness of mind, faith, and immovable confidence in the sureness of his promise. So here's how I want to finish. You don't have this scripture in your notes. Sorry about that, guys. But just think about this. You know, here we are in 1 John chapter 3, and we all feel so smallish. It's like, wow, is any of us even a believer? You see, there's a tenor to your life, and your tenor should not be sin. If your tenor is selfishness and you are seated, seated in that seat, that should cause you to have a red flag in your soul to say, is, do I even have a genuine relationship with Christ? Everything in my life is about me? I don't even think about Christ. I don't care about Christ. That's not a good sign, guys. So what should you do? Especially if you desire to be saved, you should say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? That's a good answer for that. Repent of this life. Give up that seat of fulfillment. Let it go. Bend your knee and give me the seat. Let me have your life. And as you do that, you genuinely enter into the house known as Christ. He clothes you. 
And you didn't have to do anything brilliant, anything magnificent to do it. He did the magnificent thing. It was his working. Your job is to believe. Most of us in here already have a house. We have the house. Don't question that. Now begin to function in that house. Don't take it lightly that you have the house. Don't flirt with homeless-like behavior when you have a house. Don't flirt with gusting windstorms and snowdrifts on your sofa. Don't flirt with these things. Don't mess with them. You have been given an opportunity to live a life wholly different than this world. Take advantage of it. So the same writer, John, is going to start out this entire epistle, this letter, with this statement. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That sounds sort of like 1 John chapter 3, doesn't it? You know, if we're saying, oh, I'm in fellowship with him, but we live as if, you know, singing the, the death metal lyrics, uh, something doesn't match. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when we live over here, we have this cleansing that is constant. It is a reality to this side, and it cleanses us from all sin. When we walk in the faith, we have a cleansing flood. Listen to how he finishes here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So when you read 1 John chapter 3, and we're like, okay, guys, we're going to do the test. You're like, well, I'm fine. I have no issues. It's like, hmm, really? It's, it's the irony of it. If you say that you have no problems, well, then you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a hope that we have in Jesus. So at every turn in this journey, we are unfinished. His work is finished. We are clothed in his finished work, which is why we have boldness to enter into the throne of grace. When I arrive at eternity and say I stand before that great white throne of judgment and say the question is, by what merit, Eric Ludi, can you enter into the kingdom of heaven? What's my answer? Well, I did all these good deeds. I helped this old lady across the street. You know, uh, you know this happened. I did this great deed here. Am I appealing to my good works? No. What's my answer? I'm in Christ. That's my plea. My confidence is in him. And for you right now, I want you to freshly place that confidence in him. Not in your own perfection. In him. And that is the essence of righteousness. That's how you practice righteousness. That's how you do it as a Christian. You believe you don't have to muster the perfect life. That's something he is building in you via his Holy Spirit. He is correcting, and when he corrects, you agree. And as you agree with his Holy Spirit's work, when he says, do this, speak this, repent of this, confess this, as you do that, you cultivate a healthy home. You get rid of leaks. You get rid of lamps that keep toppling over and shattering the light bulbs. All of those things begin to disappear. When you first enter into the kingdom of heaven, you could have a foul mouth, you could be addicted to drugs. There's all sorts of things. But as you continue in Christ, those things are going to melt away. You don't continue in those things. That's what John is saying. Why would you continue in those things when you have all of the equipment 
to actually move out of those things. The fact that you're still in some of those and stepping out is actually part of the process of sanctification. So don't mix up the two. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, here we are. Your children in need of your shed blood. Lord, we desire to live lives that shine the kingdom of heaven. But Lord, we are feeble. We're made of dust. We have need of our God to not just save us in an eternal sense, but to save us right now, today, from our selfishness, to save us from our inclinations, to save us from temptations that are just around the bend today, that we would keep our eyes from focusing on the wrong things. We would keep our tongues from speaking words that are selfish. Instead, our tongues would be wielded to speak words of life. That we would keep our ears from hearing words that would nullify the truth in our soul, but that we would utilize our ears to hear the truth of your word. Lord, may we meditate upon these things, the things that set apart our life to truly triumph. Lord, and where we fall short, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us afresh. We desire to serve you and to walk in the light as you are in the light. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.